0: Today's sermon text is First Samuel chapters 9 and 10. I will be reading portions of the text this morning. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 231. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of bacorath son of Aphium, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Verse 15 and 16. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Let's pray together. Father. Your word is open, therefore we need your help to discern it, to receive it, to hear it, to understand it, and then to apply it. So we pray for that help now. Would you help everyone who is listening to receive and respond? Would you help me to speak and to represent you and your word rightly? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. I want to start with a question for us to ponder. A question that is both, in my opinion, profound and compelling. One that should challenge all of our minds, cause us to meditate deeply. And I'll confess, I am not the author of this question. i know that from the beginning. I can't take credit for it. It's too creative for me to have come up with it. Okay, so here it goes. Listen closely and intently. How does an orphan, a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence in squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar? I won't leave you in suspense on the answer because I know it's killing you. The author of the question provides the answer, which is this. The $10 founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. Which should beg another question. What's your name, man? To which the same author reveals, Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. Doesn't quite have the ring to it when you're not singing and rapping it. But for those that are still obsessed with the musical Hamilton, you are welcome. For those that never cared for it, are fed up with it, or have no clue what I just said, my apologies. I'll also tell you this. Let me tell you what I'd wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Some of you are still wondering what I'm talking about. So just Google all that later and look it up. Uh, there is a point. There is a connection to this. According to the author of Hamilton, according to Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, the author of the musical, Alexander Hamilton became... A renowned figure through hard work, ingenuity, book smarts, and just to get it done attitude. But he also drops a a hint there that maybe there's more in the background that leads to what Hamilton became. That leads to where he got to. There was the mention of providence in the lyrical question that I just read. And even though Hamilton likely had a different understanding of that word than we have, he was likely a deist or a different understanding than I hope we have by the end of our time. It's still a recognition that there is something else going on behind the scenes than just self-wrought legacy, something else going on there george washington that that second quote george washington according to hamilton the musical says we have no control over our lives who lives who dies who tells our story that's more a a reference to how our legacy might be carried out but it's a telling statement about life and what happens in the background or behind the scenes and the things that are seemingly out of our control There's so many beliefs about how life plays out, about how much control we do or don't have about life in terms of how it's all going to end up. uh, How much is on us? How much is on something else or someone else? How much is blind, fate, luck, whatever you want to label it as? We could explore beliefs on that matter all day long. On one end of the spectrum, you have someone like the renowned atheist Richard Dawkins who would just say this. The universe we observe has uh, precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is and we just dance to its music. That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you would have the famous hymn writer who would say God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, deep and unsearchable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Hopefully it's no surprise to you that I would fall on the same end of the spectrum as the hymn writer would be. I would be at odds with Dawkins and I would hopefully have more clarity than Hamilton or Washington, at least according to Miranda. So we are, as you know, as I hope you can see, we are a church gathered for the worship of our God. We are at this moment gathered around the word of God and we are here this morning To do among a few things, or to learn among a few things, about the providence of God. And as talented as Miranda may be at writing a musical, we are not going to trust him to define the terms for us. We have a much more sufficient and authoritative dictionary in front of us. We have it opened to 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10, a narrative with supreme relevance for telling us how our lives play out. A narrative that sort of opens the curtain for us and allows us to get a certain level of of clarity about what's happening behind the scenes. The subtitles in these chapters point to the focus of a king with a little K, but the content elaborates on another king with a capital K. Okay. No more Hamilton references. Let's get to the text. Welcome back to the journey in 1 Samuel. If you are a guest, we're grateful that you are here. We are a few weeks into uh, this book at this point. That's how things work around here. We pick a book. We go from beginning to end. Sometimes there's one-off sermons. Sometimes there's some topical stuff. But for the most part, here's a book. It starts here. It ends here. Let's walk through that. Sometimes that takes a few weeks. Sometimes it takes a lot of weeks. If you are intrigued by that, please come back. If you are intrigued by First Samuel, we have a website. All of the previous content is there. So we would love for you to go listen to that. We hope it proves edifying. We're just grateful that you are here. We have a lot of text before us, a lot of content, a lot of detail some of it seems unimportant. Some of it seems mundane. Some of it is comical, uh, but none of it is is unimportant. None of it is mundane. But our time is limited, so uh, we will not get to all of it. We can only cover so much. But here's a framework for the rest of our time together. You do not have a note sheet in front of you. You have some notes on the screen, but really very simple. Just a framework. Five sections I want to cover uh, this text under this section of text under all having to do with the king that is now coming on the scenes and the God that is making it happen. So you will see each section reference that king and the God who's bringing it about. And then we're just going to close with three questions. So five sections, three questions. That's the road we're going to walk. Some of the sections are longer than others. So don't panic, as is normally the case. Section one is the longest. So. We'll be okay. I think we'll be okay. All right. So before we get to the first section, let's remember where we are. So God's people at this point have no human king. They have something better. They have God as king. And God has appointed Samuel as a judge and as a prophet. But if you were here last week, then you know the people, they're not a big fan of that setup anymore. And they've requested a king. They want to be like everyone else around them. God give us a king. And in case you're wondering, if you miss that, their desires are misled. Not necessarily a bad request based on what we see before in Scripture, but the heart behind the request is rotten. It's a sinful desire painted over with Scripture, in a sense. Kyle put it well last week when he says this is a treasonous request, a treasonous request. Can't dive back into that for you, but they've requested a king They've been warned about what that would lead to. They don't care. God agrees to their request. And that's where the curtains of chapter 8 close. We open up the curtains to chapter 9. And here comes the king. Sort of. We don't exactly get the entrance that we might expect. Not a lot of pomp and circumstance. Really just get some donkeys. Leads to our first section, the ignorance of the king and the providence of God, the ignorance of the king and the providence of God. In many ways, that could be the summary of all of these chapters or these two chapters combined. But there's more nuance to the text. So we'll just kind of cover these. We'll just cover this section and then we'll have some more sections. But that could have been the title of the sermon. All right. Before we get into this, let me give uh, one qualification and then one definition. OK, a qualification, a definition that will help with the rest of our time before we dive into this first section. First, the qualification. There's a good bit. And this is probably not going to instill a lot of confidence in you, but it's needed anyways. Uh, so there's a good bit of disagreement between scholars when it comes to Saul, particularly when it comes to the beginning of Saul, when he comes on the scene. And here's how I would summarize the debate without boring you with the details, because the debate doesn't change the end results. It really just affects how we view Saul early on, because there are varying views on Saul's beginning in which it affects how you read the text and how you read the details and understand them. So there's a camp that thinks that Saul starts off well and then ends badly. Okay. There's a camp that says Saul starts off well and ends badly. I don't want to spoil the story for you, but things don't go well for Saul. Okay. You're going to see that. Ryan's going to walk us through that soon enough. Okay. That that'd be putting it lightly. Things don't go well for Saul. Then there's another camp that thinks that Saul starts off pretty terribly or badly and then gets worse. So he doesn't start off well and then he gets worse. There's a more nuanced version of that that would that would say that. Saul starts off weak and then gets worse. Okay? To be transparent, I'm not 100% in any of those camps, but I certainly fall more toward the latter. That Saul is presented as weak and then just gets worse as the story unfolds. I think the camp that sees Saul as starting off bad and then getting worse is being a little unfair. Here's why I, I think there are a ton of clues given to us as the reader about where things are headed. And those clues, if you catch them and you understand them, they they tip you off to the disaster that's coming with Saul. However, those clues don't automatically make Saul right now what he's going to be. It's a bit like taking the clues, understanding where you're going and then bringing all of that back to Baron Saul right now. And it's just a little unfair for his character right now. So that's why I don't really follow that. But I still don't think that he comes out of the gate stellar, like the first camp would say. I don't think he gets off to a great start, just not quite as bad as the second camp would say. I'll give you one example of this as we go. So I'll I'll give you an example in just a minute. I'm not going to show you in every detail the you know, differing views, but I'll give you one so hopefully it makes more sense. So that's the qualification before we get in. Now the definition. What is providence? Just so we're not using the word and we don't have a clue what it means, let's go ahead and get a definition that we can carry with us through the rest of the text. Here's how one theologian defines it. Providence is the wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way God has of ruling his world and sustaining his people. Providence is the wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way God has of ruling his world and sustaining his people. That same individual goes on to add this. And I think it connects well with the text. And he's doing this frequently over, under, around, through or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. Meaning he just he does this through the ordinary in a lot of ways. I think that added statement connects a lot with the text. There are a lot of good definitions on providence that would land in the same place, but God, it's God's good governance of all things. It's how God, with wisdom and love, cares for and orders all things. Okay, that's providence. And he certainly does it through the extraordinary time, through the extraordinary, but he also very frequently works through the ordinary. And the text before us certainly spends a lot more time on how God works through the latter, through the ordinary. Okay, so that's the definition, as well as a qualification on how I'm unpacking the text. I'm not alone. A lot of people unpack the text in the same way, but just wanted to give that to you. So now back to our section, the ignorance of the king and the providence of God. And by ignorance, I mean a little bit more on the unknowing side. Saul is presented as ignorant to what's happening, what's going on, which is understandable. But he's also presented as a bit ignorant in other ways as well. And hopefully we'll see those. So verses one and two, we get his introduction. Let me read this again. Uh, she just read it. but Let me read it again. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerorah, son of Bacchara, son of Afia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. There he is. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Doesn't mean he just had a really long neck. Just means he was a head taller than everyone else. Because that's a weird way to phrase it. Just means he was a head taller than everybody else. He was that much bigger. Not like he's five foot and then there's another foot and a half here. All right. So first... Let's file away the reference to Saul's appearance. It's important. I think it's important. It's not really a knock on Saul, but it's more about what God is saying or about God's response to the people's request. It ties in more with how God is responding to what his people has have requested. So file that away. We'll come back to that for now. Saul is really just described as most likely to succeed. Tall, good looking, rich kid. Okay. If you parade him out in front of people, everybody looks to go, Yep, makes sense. I get it. Tall, rich kid, good looking. He's going to be a good king. Alright, so just file that away for a moment. Now to the mundane, and the reason that the sermon title references donkeys. Uh, verses three and four. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, that uh said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalom, Sh- Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Pretty straightforward. OK, donkeys are lost. Go look for the donkeys. Can't find the donkeys. All right. Lost donkeys. Search party that doesn't find them. OK, that's where we are. Here's the example of the diverging views on Saul. Okay, this is the one example I'm going to give you. Okay, from here on out, my view is correct. Right, so we're just going to go with that. All right, for the camp that thinks Saul starts good and ends badly, they see Saul as the obedient and faithful son that's just following out his father's wishes. Okay, there's no reference to him losing the donkeys. He's just the faithful son that goes. And tries to find the donkeys at his father's wish. Just obeying and honoring his father's. Losing donkeys is a common thing. Not a big deal there. So this is a common and commendable thing for Saul to go and search for the donkeys. To me, that seems pointless. To just view it that way. The, The details don't mean a whole lot. For the camp I somewhat fall in that says Saul starts weak and ends badly. I think this is one of the many clues that things aren't going to bode well for Saul. So we don't have time to chase this down. But the concept of a shepherd and the idea of a king are wed together often in Scripture. Okay, they are often connected. And here you have the coming king, the future king, the about to be king being presented as what looks like a somewhat inept shepherd. He can't find The sheep, which to me is a clue about what is to come. So there's one example of diverging views on how you look at Saul in these first couple of chapters. Okay? If you disagree, then take it up with Ryan. He asked me to preach. Okay? He can correct it next week. So let's proceed on. We're going to read a chunk of the text and then try to summarize more of it as we go. So let's read 5 through 19. And hopefully you'll see the truth behind my first uh, heading here. Verse five, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back. Lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, that's the servant said to him, behold, there's a man of God in this city and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, we can't. What can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here. They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who have arrived will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward toward them on his way up to the high place. Um, Skip down to verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. A little awkward there. So Saul said to the servant, can't find the donkeys. Saul thinks it's wise to turn back. By now, his father, I mean, I mean, it's reasonable by now. my I don't know how long they've been gone, but by now my father might think we're lost and the donkeys are gone. But the servant, however, has another idea. The unnamed servant has another idea. Uh, the servant, by the way, I don't know. I read this and we all make cultural references, but the servant is Penny in Inspe- Inspector Gadget. Anybody remember that? Inspector Gadget gets all the credit, but Penny's doing all the work. There's a lot of TV shows. Might have lost several people there. Um, so she's the one that saves the day and over, over and over. So there, there are points you read the story and you go. Maybe the servant, the young unnamed boy should be the king and not not Saul. He seems to know more what's going on. So. All right. So what's the plan from the servant? Go see the prophet, Um you know, go see the prophet of God. They just happened. So intentional phrasing there. They just happened to be in the land of Zuff. If you go back to chapter one, you know, that Samuel's land that connects to his family. So we've ended up in Samuel's territory as we're looking for these donkeys I do think there's something telling here. You notice how Saul seems ignorant as to where they are and who lives in this area. You have arguably the most famous person in Israel at that time living in this territory and Saul seems clueless to that, but yet the young servant knows that someone lives here that is important. Saul seems sort of spiritually unaware of someone very spiritually significant in this time, but Saul at least brings up a good point. If we're going to go see a prophet called a seer, and that day we get kind of a little bit of commentary there. We need a gift, but I don't have one. Case closed. Let's go home. Here comes Wonder Boy again to the rescue. So you didn't bring any money, but I did. To give Saul credit, it actually reads like, "Look, look what I found. I've got a shekel of silver. I didn't really know I had that." So they have a plan. They have some money. Off they go. On the way to the city, they meet some women at a well, which you could probably do a whole sermon on. I mentioned this in core training this morning. If you're reading scripture and women are at a well, something significant is going to happen. Likely in the Old Testament, somebody's about to get married. There are plenty of commentators that actually point to this being a this this pointing to Saul's uh, marriage to Israel. Okay, they're about to be wedded together. So I don't know if that works or not, but it makes sense. You skip over verse 15 like we did because it's a bit of a flashback. And, uh, you know, like the narrator letting us in on what's going on. Verse 18, Saul approaches Samuel, no clue who he is. Can you point me to the seer or the prophet? Samuel says, I'm him. I'm him. I'm the guy you're looking for. And it it reads almost like a tale of ignorance that brings Saul to Samuel. He just he just. I don't know what's happening in the background, but there's also some things I'm kind of clueless about. Some of the events don't reflect well on Saul. Some present clues regarding where things are heading. The soon-to-be king seems to be a spiritually ignorant, somewhat inept shepherd at this point. Here's a little bit of insight from one commentator that I think is helpful on this point. He says... First time introductions to biblical characters matter. So first time introductions to biblical characters matter in ancient literature. Character is more or less fixed. People do not really change over the course of their lifetimes. The manner in which they are introduced often functions as a shorthand summary of their lives. So if Saul fails so badly and that is true, then he can't be starting off that well. So the introduction of Saul tells us much more than we often think. Now, back to verse 15, really the main feature here. The author opens the curtain, lets us in on the secret. And here how we see all of these seemingly mundane things like lost donkeys are being used for a much bigger purpose. Let's read this again. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and he shall anoint him to be you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because the cry has come up to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, there's the man. Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain my people. This text proves the old saying is true regarding God's providence. God's providence, like Hebrew, has to be read backwards. So if you're not familiar with Hebrew, you read from right to left. Providence has to be read backwards to truly understand it. You go to the end and go back, and the author's letting us see how this is playing out. These verses show us all that's been playing out behind the ordinary events These are really ordinary events in time like this. Nothing abnormal about someone going to look for donkeys, but every detail being worked out by God to get the new king to the place that he wanted him for the future purpose of his people being delivered from the hands of their enemies. A point we'll come back to here in just a minute. This is Proverbs 69 in action. Okay, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. I think Martin Luther hit the nail on the head in connecting the way in which God works through the ordinariness of life. He says God's wonderful works, which happen daily, are lightly esteemed, not because they are of no import, but because they happen so constantly and without interruption. Man is used to the miracle that God rules the world and upholds all creation. And because things daily run their appointed course, it seems insignificant. And no man thinks it's worth his while to meditate upon it and to regard it as God's wonderful work. And yet it is his work through the ordinary things. It is a greater wonder than that Christ fed the five thousand with five loaves and turned water into wine. To paraphrase that, God's good governance over the thousands of events that make up your life is a greater wonder than a single miracle. We just don't notice it. We are not prone to meditate upon it. We are not prone to study it like we are a miracle. We're not prone to broadcast it like we are a miracle. All right. So much more there. We need to move on because we have four more sections. But here's the point. The events of Saul's journey are not here. are They're not unimportant. They're extremely important. They're somewhat amusing. OK. But God's providence is, is the star of the show. OK. God's providence is the star of the show out of the gate here. As the hymn I referenced earlier goes, God works in mysterious ways. But he does throw does so through ordinary acts. All right. Next section: the anointing of the king and the assurance of God. The anointing of the king and the assurance of God. All right, these these get shorter. All right, first one was the longest one. So you have Saul meets Samuel. He tells him that the donkeys are fine in verse twenty. I'm going to start summarizing uh, some of this for you. So they meet. Donkeys are fine. Uh, which I'm just going to be honest with you. I read texts like this and I go, how'd they find the donkeys? I'd really I'd really like to know who found the donkeys because wonder boy servant. You think he would have got them. Saul couldn't find them, The son couldn't find them, And I guess you can't call when they come back. But I'm just going to add that to the I'm going to ask Jesus list in eternity and we're going to settle who found the donkeys. Remember, it's eternity. So you got a lot of time to ask questions. But those things bug me if you just want to get in my head a little bit. So Samuel starts to unpack things for Saul. Saul immediately and probably rightly humbly pushes back even before he knows the whole story. So if you just you can kind of glance through as we go through chapter nine here after what I just finished reading. Um, So he references being a Benjamite. okay? so not the largest and most popular clan at that time. You want to know why? Go back and read Judges 19 through 20 and you'll agree. You'll think, okay, Saul was right to be humble about where he came from. If we go back and read what that tribe was doing in Judges 19 and 20. So, Saul has a point. Alright, so I'll actually put this as a check mark on the positive side for Saul. So he's tall, he's handsome, he's rich, and he's not completely arrogant. Like, I'll take those check marks any day. Tall, handsome, rich, and not completely arrogant. That works. Alright? So there's a feast that ensues that's been prepared somewhat uh, in advance. So you kind of get down verse 22 area there, at least. So it's been prepared in advance, particularly some details for Saul. Uh, there's some details here that matter in this, but we're going to have to just kind of fly over those right now. Uh, they eat the feast and then Saul sleeps in a bed that's been prepared for him. So God called in advance, got supper ready, got a bed ready, and we go to bed. And then Samuel, verse 26 is apparently an early riser. So goes Saul, get up Saul, time to go, send Wonder Boy on his way. We need to have a conversation. I need you to hear what God wants you to hear. So that kind of gets us down to chapter 10. Turn the page to chapter 10 and Samuel privately anoints Saul. You see there, he pours oil on his head, proclaims God's word to him. And take note, there's a word there that comes up a second time. Has not the Lord, the very beginning of verse uh, one or the second part of verse one in chapter 10, has not the Lord appointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? A second time that's used. It was used in chapter nine. That's not a throwaway. OK, Israel has a king. Their king is God. God. They've asked for another king and in reality, they're going to get a prince no matter what they think they're getting. God is not stepping off the throne and Saul stepping on it. God is saying is staying on the throne and appointing Saul to serve under him. Don't fly by that choice of words. I'm going to appoint you a leader, but I'm the king. Now, one other clue here that's significant and it's not a clue that points to where. Saul is headed in his life. It's one of the clues here that points to something much further in the future. OK, it's a clue about how the first king points to the ultimate king. So there's another clue here. hopefully no surprise here. I'm talking about Jesus. OK, so anytime I say ultimate king, we're talking about Jesus. So there's a clue that gets us from Saul to Jesus. All right. So it's not like when we're going through the Old Testament that Jesus is Waldo in every text. But there's something that gets us to Christ. There's something that makes a connection to what we've been talking about in core training, sort of this redemptive historical context. This, this one story that takes us from Genesis to Revelation. There's something that connects to that so we can get to Jesus. Okay? You want to know more about that? Nine o'clock. Okay? Nine o'clock every Sunday morning. It's free. Alright? So the, the clue is, here, here's the clue. It's the anointing. Okay? The anointing here Combined with the fact that we're about to see Saul prophesying. So you kind of got a double clue. All right. He's being anointed and then he's going to prophesy in a few verses. And we can't fully chase this down, but there are three main offices in the Old Testament. OK, three main offices, one of prophet, one of priest, and one of king. OK, we fast forward to Jesus. He fulfills all of those offices perfectly. Perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. In the words of the late Tim Keller, he is the true and better prophet, he is the true and better priest, he is the true and better king. Well here we are hearing about the first king over Israel and he's anointed something you only did to sacred objects and priests. So you have a king being anointed. And in just a minute, he's going to prophesy. So he's going to act like a prophet. And you start to get the signals going off. You start to hear Jesus in the background. You start to see the signpost. It's a long way before we get there. If you know what's coming, King David gives us a lot more to work with. But the clues are even here. Think about it like this. It's probably a crude reference. Okay. Uh, Maybe not. Okay. The signs here to Jesus, okay, they're, they're, they're sort of like small signs on the interstate that kind of intrigue you, but you're going by so fast, you, you miss them, and you're like, what'd that say? I don't remember what that said. So the signs in Saul that point to Jesus are kind of like that, whereas when Ryan's going to get to do this, when you get to David, it's like Alexander Shinar signs. They're just everywhere, okay? But they're not annoying. They're just everywhere, okay? Just obvious. So. That OK? <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Keep going. He's anointed. Uh, just kind of keep glancing at the text, told big picture what he'll do, uh, what he'll be. And then he's given what I'll call an outline of assurance. He's given an outline of assurance. He's just all this assurance is about to come to him. OK, can't look at this in detail, but here's the gist. This is God saying as you progress through chapter 10, I've got some things set up for you that are about to happen to give you assurance about what I just told you, who you're going to be and what you're going to do. OK, I've got some things that should give you confidence. So verses two through eight in chapter 10, unpack what I would call signs of assurance and what they will be. And then the last part of verse nine basically says they happened. OK, you look at the last part of verse nine, they just happened as outlined. And then you look down at verse 10, you have the spirit of God rush upon Saul and he becomes like prophet for a day. And the people are amazed. Are amazed. Is that Kish's boy? Like. What's up with him? He's prophesying. All right, th- This section is supposed to be shorter, so let's tie a, a bow in. I've I've labeled what God is doing here as assurance, and it is that. But what he's doing in chapter 10 is also equipping. He's equipping Saul. But to put assurance and equipping together would have ruined my alliteration in the outline. But it's assurance and equipping. And there's no word that means both. So just by the way. But we have we have a truth here that we see elsewhere in Scripture that God equips for the tasks he assigns. He also chooses unlikely candidates. Another theme we see here. And then he provides what's necessary for whatever task he gives them. Unlikely candidates. Equipped to carry out the task that they are given. He gives the strength and the resources for the work he calls you to. God equips for the task. You can go to the New Testament and think of 1 Peter 4. In 1 Peter 4, Peter's talking about gifts that God gives to the church and he concludes by saying, serve by the strength that God supplies. God equips for the task at hand, the task at which he appoints. Now, That's that's a truth that can be abused and is abused. Some people try to justify like requesting private jets because they say God's made me an evangelist. So you can abuse that as if, well, God told me to do this, so he should give whatever is needed. So abuse is rampant. Use that truth lightly, knowing that God's not going to put anything in front of you, that he's not going to give you what you need to carry it out. All right, one somewhat quick qualification before we move on. You have the spirit, it says, rushing on Saul. And then you have verse 9, look at that, that says that God gave him another heart. What does that sound like? Sounds salvific, right? uh, Saul, Saul got a new heart, but it's not. Okay, that would be misleading. If it is, his life would be a really big contradiction. The word there just means that he, he overthrew Saul's heart. It's not the same language used elsewhere to talk about the circumcision of the heart. Samuel is not using regeneration type language. We, would, we see the same word here that, that God gave him a new heart. We see the same word used of Pharaoh in Exodus 15. He overthrew his heart. We see the same word used of God in Hosea 11. Okay, God was not regenerated. Pharaoh was not regenerated. So that's not what it's talking about. The language here is pointing to Saul being redirected, not being saved. And the rest of his life is proof of that interpretation. So that qualification. Next section in a very brief one. Next, we have the certification of the king and the judgment of God. The certification of the king and the judgment of God. In verses 17 through 21 of chapter 10, we have the public announcement of Saul as king. But the introduction of Saul, which gets pretty comical, doesn't happen first without a dire reminder from Samuel. Samuel was a tough preacher. I, I'm, I've gotten a lot of flack for how things went in core training this morning. You could have had Samuel. Which would have been better, but worse than what you thought I was doing. Okay. by the way, I was called the Simon Cowell of Sunday school teachers this morning. So show up next week and figure out no two weeks and figure out what that means. All right. Anything to draw them in. Right. Anything to draw them in. All right. Verse 17 through 19 are a reminder and a summation of stuff that that has already been said to the people about getting a king. Samuel doesn't pull any punches. So let me paraphrase this as you glance over 17 uh, through 21. Okay, everyone come together. Be quiet. Listen in. Big announcements. Remember God. Remember remember God that, that saved you from Egypt. Remember the God that takes care of you. Rescues you. That's done all this stuff for you. you remember that God?
0: Do
1: you remember rejecting him also? you remember rejecting the one that is so good to you? You've asked for a king just like everyone else. So come together and you're going to get what you asked for. That's that's basically what he's saying here. Then the a process of using lots are used to sovereignly narrow down God's choice to Saul. We'll get to the fact if you look ahead that Saul's actually hiding. You might remember that part of the story you keep reading on. They get to Saul and it's like, Saul. King, you know, dude's hiding in the in the in the baggage. So we'll get to that in a minute. Um, But once he's found, you have another reference to his height. Okay, so that's twice we have him reference. Verse 23, they ran and took him from there. He's hiding. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Again, physically speaking, tall. uh, Saul was the guy you wanted to walk out in front of people. Tall, good looking, rich. Not completely arrogant. He's going to get the job done. Well, I think the height thing is actually a clue, another clue about where things are headed. All right, kids, time for you to tune in. Pastor Ryan's done a great job of getting you guys engaged. So I'm going to I'm learning, learning how to preach better. So do you know who is typically referenced as tall in Scripture? So simple question, kids. I'm going to break it down even for the youngest in the Bible. Are the good guys normally referenced as tall or the bad guys? So it's a good guy, bad guy choice. Jackson, you can't go, man. You answer every week. Go ahead. The bad guys. Okay. Can can one of you name a famous bad guy that's referenced as tall? Here we go. Oh, you got to say it louder. Goliath. That's right. Okay. Things didn't go well for him, right? All right. It's typically the enemy's... Hey, man, there we go. That's right. You she couldn't hear her over there. So you just spoke up for her. All right. That's awesome. So it's typically the enemies of God that are as tall. Samuel says, here's the king you wanted. And the height reference is signaling the judgment of God that's going to come through the punishment of God that's going to come through this new king. You're getting what you asked for. You're getting a tall king like the other nations. That's not a good reference. Nobody good is referenced as tall. But it's certainly not all judgment from God. It's not all bad, which leads to our next point. The unbelief of the king and the compassion of God, the unbelief of the king and the compassion of God. Honestly, I struggled with how to put these together. So hopefully this makes sense. It's not hard to read this scene and sort of laugh. Okay, again, here's the announcement. Here's the king. And everyone just looks around. Where's he at? Okay, he's hiding. People can't. And and what's really funny is the people can't even figure out where he is. God has to step in the ceremony and go, guys, he's over there. Go get him. Like It says the Lord says he's hiding. So he's still helping the people and he's helping Saul get there, which to me shows both Saul's unbelief as well as God's compassion. So first you have Saul who has been told by God, you are the king. Okay? He's been given multiple signs of assurance that he's the king. The spirit has rushed upon him. Which, by the way, I forgot this reference earlier. That, that spirit rushed upon. Heard a great illustration on that. Again, I'm, I'm going back. So, you didn't get the Inspector Gadget one, you may not get this one. This is like Mario and Super Mario Brothers getting a superstar. You know, it just lasts for a moment and then it's gone. It actually passes to David at some point later. Okay? Some of you, a few of you will get that reference. Then the process of lots is used to land on Saul. All right. So he's told by God, by God's prophet, you're the king. He's given signs of assurance. They all come to pass. The spirit rushes upon him. His heart is overturned. The lots point to him. What else does he need? It is hard to spin his hiding in a good way can't help it there's another example the people in one camp say he's being humble really it's unbelief like god has confirmed this for you and we skipped over this but you might could add there's an exchange with his uncle in verses 14 through 16 where he doesn't disclose what's been told to him, but we can give him a little leeway there because it's still a secret at that point that he's the king. It's not been publicly announced, but his, his uncle's asking him point blank. What did the prophet tell you? And he's, like, he's told me where the donkeys were. That's it. So but we'll give him a pass on that one. So we see the unbelief of the now pronounced king, but don't miss the compassion of God. Not just in pointing out where Saul is so. Samuel reminds the people of how they rejected God and chapter eight spelled out what that meant. Okay, and there are clues here for that. But Saul is hiding and God doesn't rebuke him. He just helps the people find him. But more profound than that. So his compassion is more profound in other ways. God says repeatedly throughout this text, this king will deliver you from your enemies. Okay, you heard that when we got when when. Back in chapter nine, verses 15, when we kind of get the curtain opened up for us, he says, I've heard their cry. I am listening to you. I do care about you. So there is judgment, but there's also compassion. One author said this, "said Israel's stupidity does not wither God's compassion. Another writer said it's through Saul and this account that we see God's mulish mercy and the fact that. Their sin does not dry up the fountain of his mercy. Whole chapter about providence. But right here, you come to the point where you see warm providence. You just see really warm. Every reason to reject these people, every reason to judge them and smite them. But down to the smallest detail, he's helping them. There's your new king. He's over there. I've heard your cry. He's going to save you from the hand of your enemies. They've they've rejected him. But yet the compassion just keeps flowing. All right. Last section and then some questions. Lastly, let's look at the commissioning of the king and the word of God. Verse 24 seems the people are happy, at least most of them. Okay, Some unhappy people at the end. Uh, You read the end there and it's, you know. Verse twenty seven. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Saul held his peace. Look, there, there's a there's a whole nother point there that I don't have time to make. But even if God chooses the man, people are still going to reject him. OK, even if God chooses the man, they're still going to reject him. There's even a signpost there that would take us to Christ. But we're not going to we're not going to get there. The majority are shouting, long live the king, long live the king there at the end of verse 24. Then you get to 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And then he, then he sent them all home. Samuel basically puts together a manual for the king and the kingship. And the king, the short version is the king is to be directed by God's word. Earlier in the narrative, Saul even or Samuel even tells Saul, you need to wait for me. Go there and wait for me. I'll give you instruction, which is God's instruction. If you were here last week, you heard a lot about Deuteronomy 17, which gives some early instructions about what kings in Israel would be like. And it gives clear instruction that kings would follow God's word. It specifically says, talking about the book of law, uh, the book of the law in Deuteronomy 17, it said, and it shall be with him talking about the king and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all of the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up, that he may not turn aside. So the commissioned human king has divine marching orders. And he's to follow them. The prince has a king himself, one he's subject to. One who knows what's best and one who knows what's best for his people. Now, we know this king's going to fail at that. Again, sorry to spoil the story if you don't know Samuel. OK, it's a train wreck. It goes downhill pretty quick. But this this here is another signpost to Jesus that we don't need to miss. This king here failed miserably to live by God's word. But the one to come never veers from God's word. The one to come is the perfect Deuteronomy 17 king. All right, I'm already out of time, but we got some questions. All right, quickly, nothing earth shattering here in terms of originality, nothing novel in these questions, blocking and tackling stuff. Just want to try to help some of the truths from today land on us and affect our lives in some way. First, and probably the most substantial in terms of direct connection to the text because this text is probably more. Uh, do you believe this sort of text instead of what do I do sort of text? Um, so first question, will you trust God's providential care? Will you trust God's providential care? So this is uh, about a specific individual, uh, a king in Israel, the first king. It's an account of how God providentially brought him to that role. So we don't we don't fit that category. So we're not like directly in the story, but it is an account of of how God providentially orders all things and cares for all things. Even if a prophet doesn't come to you and say, here's what God says, even if you don't get that level of clarity, you can trust that God is at work and you can trust that God is at work in the seemingly mundane and ordinary moments of your days and of your weeks and of your years. You're being given evidence of that here, even if it doesn't specifically play out for you like it does here. Joe and Kat and I are in charge of the youth on Wednesday nights. I don't know how they got stuck with me, but they did. I think I'm nicer to the youth, apparently. They don't get on me like the adults do. But Joe and Kat had put a question before the youth a few weeks ago. Said go or an assignment Said go and ask your parents how they've seen God's faithfulness in your lives. And guess what, adults? They went and did it, you know? They went and did it and asked, and and they brought it back to us. And it was, you know, I'm reading, I'm studying this text, and I'm hearing those stories, and it was story after story from the youth of how God worked through ordinary things in their parents' lives. How he had been faithful through ordinary things. Events of how they got a certain house to be able to move in a house they couldn't afford to get you know it was just like all these how god used this person to do this in their lives and he provided and all of them were just really ordinary things that happened in our lives nothing miraculous but all recounted god's faithfulness providential care through ordinary events i love how piper Says this about providence and he's only talking here about when things are not going well in your life He says in all the setbacks of your life as a believer. God is plotting Your joy In all the setbacks god is plotting your joy. So you think believer you struggling right now If you're a believer and you're struggling right now one day unhindered joy God's plotting that right now Even through the setbacks So why don't you ask yourself the same question the youth ask their parents? It's a roundabout way to get to the question I just posed. Next question, will you follow God's guiding word? Again, we often have no clue of what God is up to in our lives. Okay, the curtains were open for Saul, but we know we know God's at work, even if we don't get that level of clarity. So what do we do when we can't see or don't seem to know what's going on? We look to what he said. We look at texts like this that show how he works. We look to countless texts that give us hope to get through it, whatever it is. We look to texts that provide truth amidst uncertainty. We look to texts that show us what faithfulness looked like. We look to texts that give us assurance that we're going to make it. God may not send a prophet. Specifically to speak to you, but he has put the prophets in your hand. Will you follow God's good word that guides your life? You know, I've always thought that let go and let God is a stupid saying. Follow God closely and cling tightly may not be well worded, but it's much better. Last question. Will you trust in God's promised king? Will you trust in God's promised king? Saul, he's not the answer. We know that. Okay, we can we can get hints of that from this chapter. We don't know it specifically in this chapter, but we have the rest of the stories uh, of the story. We know it's going downhill. But the clues here don't just tell us it's not going to work for Saul. The clues, again, also tell us that it will work for Jesus. God's story says, Saul is the king that you ask for, but Jesus is the king I will ultimately give you. And the question for us is, will we trust him? Saul, according to what Kyle covered last week in chapter eight, Saul will be a king who will take. He will be a king that doesn't give of himself, but simply takes more from his people. Jesus is not a king who takes, but a king who gives, who gives life freely, who gives eternal life freely. Jesus is a king that gives of himself sacrificially and asks nothing of you in return. Nothing but belief, nothing but faith, faith that he is the true king that you need, the good king that came to rescue you, the compassionate king Who loves you? The providential king who cares for you? The Messiah king who died for you? That's what he asked. Believe that. The first two questions that we're ending with here are really geared for those who already know this king. This last question is for those who haven't met him yet. Those that don't believe in him. You know, this text tells me. You know, what this text tells me, it tells me something about everyone that would fall in that category. The ones that don't yet believe, don't yet know this king. It tells me one thing in particular, that you are not here by accident. You may not have gone chasing donkeys this morning, but you ended up right where God wanted you. And it's not to hear about the king Saul but to hear ultimately about King Jesus. It would be our prayer for you that one day you would come alongside us who have given our lives to him and you would say with us, Long live the King. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word that doesn't leave us ignorant as to how you work, who you are, how you govern our lives. So we, we praise you for the clarity that your word brings, and we pray now that you would help us to trust your providential care. Not just trust your care, but to follow your word, and to do so faithfully, to cling to it. We also pray for those that have not yet met King Jesus. Would that become a reality now or soon? Long live the King. It's in His name we pray. Amen.